Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. Hey, Grandmaster Picel. Can you tell us the warning about Binge Mode's adult content? Well, I think about, I think about Binge Mode. Is, uh, binge Mode contains <laughs> adult situations. Contains violence and sex. <sighs> Never mind. Here's Binge Mode. Knowledge is power. Seize him. Cut his throat. Stop. Wait. I've changed my mind. Let him go. Power is power. Hello! Woo! And welcome to Binge Mode! I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com, and joining me today, now that his ass has killed a sledge, That's right. it's a Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Jason? When a man sows on his name day, he reaps the whole year. Beautiful hound impersonation. Yeah. I really love it. Jason? That is not my strongest. Sam hasn't seen a girl in six months, and we haven't talked about Game of Thrones in one whole week. Wow. But we're back. We're back to continue our binge rewatch and our discussion of all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones, which we are deep diving into one episode at a time. The cold winds are rising, but our roots, like Craster's, are sunk deep. Disgusting. So let's gather our army and begin our season two binge. Spoiler warning, as usual, for all of you out there, we will be going deep on details from the show and the books for this season and beyond. But it's time to live free, friends. It's time to break down season two, episode one, The North Remembers. Before we spit on our ancestors, let's take a quick trip down our very own King's Road with a brief... Courage restoring refresher on the key happenings from the North Remembers. Take it away. In the world at large, a red comet has appeared in the sky, bringing with it portents of good and evil to all those who gaze upon it. Up in Winterfell, where there must always be a Stark, as the old saying goes, Bran is playing the Lord, and his wolf dreams are fully underway. The Red Waste is living up to its name. Danny and her ragged band of Dothraki are dying out there. They could use some water. She sent scouts in all directions in search of safe harbor and some assistance. Beyond the wall. We're finally beyond the wall. Made it. Again, I guess. The Night's Watch sets up camp at a ramshackle hovel located in the haunted forest owned by the lecherous, incestuous monster, Craster. Good dude. Craster's keep. Here we go. I like that X. <laughs> Craster tells the Lord Commander Mormont that Mance Raider, who's a former member of the Night's Watch, has gathered all of the wildlings into a massive army. All of the wildlings except for Craster and his daughter wives. And that he's gathering these wildling troops with the intention of marching south. On Dragonstone, Stannis Baratheon is preparing to invade Westeros. His first move is to curry favor the Lord of Light by allowing Melisandre, the Red Priestess, to burn the statues of the Seven. During the ritual, she proclaims Stannis to be Azor Ahai, the legendary hero who once saved the world from darkness. Returned again. Ron Howard voice, he isn't. 
<laughs> Stannis sends letters across the realm naming Joffrey a creature of incest and proclaiming himself the one true king. Stannis's maester, Cresson, who basically raised the Baratheon boys, attempts to poison Melisandre. She drinks down the cup, stares right in Crescent's eyes, and watches as he sinks to the floor. Baller move, man. In Rob's camp, he has Jaime, the Kingslayer, penned up and visits him for just a a nice little little, little chat. A chat between bros. And tells Jaime about Stannis' letter revealing the truth of Joffrey's parentage. Rob also sends a message of his own, this one to King's Landing, with his peace terms. And these peace terms, which he knows that Cersei and co. will not take seriously, include... The North being a free and independent kingdom. That is king in the North. quite a term. <laughs> Theon, good old Theon, somehow convinces Rob to send him home <laughs> to the Iron Islands to treat with his father, Balon, Whoops. in exchange for the ships, for the fleet that the Starks need to attack King's Landing. And Kat tries to talk Rob out of this, as she should, and Rob's response is to send her not home to see her sons, but on the road to negotiate an alliance with Renly in the Stormlands. King's Landing. No surprise here. Joffrey is already intoxicated by the power of being king. He holds a uh, name day festival at which he almost has a person killed. Tyrion returns to the city to take up his position as Hand of the King, enraging Cersei. He also brings Shay, uh, setting her up in the Tower of the Hand. He warns her to be careful that they have a lot of enemies about who would love to hurt Tyrion through her, and she may or may not listen. Uh, and Shay utters the, the classic line, I love the smell of cum. I love it. We love the smell of dead bodies and shit. And cum and garlic and rum. Littlefinger tries to get cute with Cersei uh, in term, and by uh, trying to lecture her about money equaling power, and she teaches him a lesson. And Stannis' letter reaches King's Landing. Joffrey aggressively questions Cersei in the throne room about it while redecorating and then orders the culling, the massacre of all the Baratheon bastards, babies and all. Chill dude, Joffrey. What a, what a good guy. Chill dude. Well, Jason, as Tyrion yes. taught us, death is so boring. It really is. Especially now with such excitement in the world. So let's get to that excitement. Let's cut to the core of this episode's big idea by sticking it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is flexing. Power is, in general, one of the defining themes of this entire series, right? But it is it is particularly present throughout all of season two. Yeah. And in The North Remembers, we see numerous shows of power, sometimes soft, sometimes hard, sometimes very real, sometimes projected and, and manufactured, but always used in a way that says, or at least attempts to say, I'm here, I'm a force, fear me, regard me, yep. recognize my worth. And we meet an all-star caliber flexor midway through the premiere. Melisandra, the red woman, who has to have one of the most memorable introductions that any character has ever had when she... <laughs> goes up to the homie Crescent and says, you smell of fear, fear and piss and old bones. Wow. 
Which is just rude. Like, that's just not a nice thing to say to somebody. There's... He raised the Baratheon boys. There's no place for that, especially at a gathering, at a bonfire. That should be a time for civility and pleasantries. But what is she doing? Why is she having a bonfire? She is burning the gods, the totems of the seven. And she's saying to the assembled, Stannis' people on Dragonstone, in the ancient books, it is written that a warrior will pull a burning sword from the fire, and that sword shall be Lightbringer. Stannis Baratheon, warrior of light, your sword awaits you. She is ordering a king yeah. around and also claiming ancient mystical knowledge, which is a major flex. Right. And it's also our first hint that Melisandre has a bit of the con woman to her. Crescent sees this. Immediately. What can he do about it? Um, he's, as I've said, he's raised the Brathian boys. He cares deeply about them. And, and he understands that Stannis is making a fateful choice, choosing to turn his back on uh, the religion of the Seven in a way that could really fracture um, Westerosi culture. And so he flexes by trying to have her killed. He poisons a cup and has her drink it. And then she, in turn, flexes back at him yeah, by <laughs> by drinking that darn thing and not dying and somehow making Crescent die. Crescent's uh, fatal flex here is a good reminder that flexing only actually works if you're not panicked when you're doing it. And he tipped his hand, yeah. right? He's running around down on the beach talking crazy Casting aspersions, putting her on blast, yeah. trying to get everyone to turn on her. Well, it's really then hard to just walk upstairs and try to kill someone. Right. They're going to be on the lookout. He kind of pulled a Ned a little <laughs> bit, did. right? Like he's basically like, play it cool, Chris. here's my plan. Here's how I attempt to bring you down. Right. Here's what I'm thinking. Cool. And it wasn't cool. She, she pulls a, a, one of the iconic lines of the show out. The night is dark and full of terrors, old man, but the fire burns them all away. Woof. Her necklace glows. This is basically her diss track. You know, the mixture of victimhood and strength is a heady, heady brew, and Stannis has this. He feels the need to project his strength because he is the rightful king of Westeros. He's been given a dragonstone. He's second in line. Renly is his younger brother. Um, And so he needs to put Cersei... Jamie and the bastard king on blast. He writes that letter, flexes grammatically, even. He's a real grammarian. <laughs> One of his defining traits, really a stickler yeah. for sentence structure and syntax. And and you get and they do such a great job of of giving you a sense of the the steeliness of uh, Stannis here. There's no room for niceties in it, with Stannis Baratheon, ordering Mathos to remove beloved before brother. And Davos says, a harmless courtesy, your grace, Stannis. A lie. Take it out. Take it out. He's like the journalism 101 professor who makes you do the exercise where you have to rewrite your piece without any adjectives or adverbs. You know, and the letter says, by right of blood, I do this day lay claim to the iron throne of Westeros. Let all true men declare their loyalty. You know, this is a guy who who uh, falls into the trap of that that kind of like fatal misconception that um, your position demands loyalty in and of itself, right. not the person. Uh, he says, 
Further, Joffrey, Renly, Rob, Stark, they're all thieves. They'll bend the knee or I'll destroy them. You will? How? <laughs> you know, like, you have a very meager army, my friend. And this is, and this shows you why he needs to flex. He's very, very weak right now. This is why he's latched on to Melisandre. She gives him that bare hope of this is the path forward. Right. Um, and we see right away what kind of dude he is. He's hard, stern. He will not break the rules. He doesn't flex in a showy way, but he, he flexes because he needs to show, I'm strong. I'm here. I am the rightful king of Westeros. There's no room for uh, bending, even if it means making his path to the, to the throne even 1% easier. Tyrion is having a little more fun yeah. than Stannis and having a little more fun than a lot of people. He's you're smarter than people. It's fun. It's right. It's easy to have fun when you know that you're just naturally a few steps ahead. His we missed you on the battlefield name day party crash <laughs> is truly laugh out loud hysterical. He is shaming the king at the king's own birthday party and then he basically does the exact same thing to Cersei when he enters the small council chamber and drops the uh oh actually well, well actually he well actually is her right yeah. father's hand to the king well actually yeah. you know I'm the hand of the king now and he just has so many perfect flex zingers you look more ravishing than ever sweet sister war agrees with you (laughs) he's just owning every exchange that he has he hands over parchments like he's this just in control baller and she is so flustered she can't hang right she's used to being in this position of seeming control and her only reaction her only way to cope is to literally have a meltdown and scream and force everybody to leave Tyrion's best flex lines in this scene come a lot from from intonation the yeah. way that he emphasizes certain parts of speech yeah she's like I, I didn't i did nothing i did nothing wrong what does he say quite right you you did nothing. did nothing <laughs> when joffrey took off ned's head right he says that bit of theater will haunt our family for a generation that's tier- that's tywin talking right there by the way and not wrong yeah not, not wrong, wrong at, all. at all there's that cons- that familial concern passed down through the bloodline about legacy and the family name and what lives on when you're gone and then he keeps playing the father card this time a little more overtly because that was that was subtle sort of parroting tywin's thinking and this is just a straight daddy's mad line <laughs> father will be furious this is after he finds out that she doesn't have yeah. aria that she only has one valuable hostage to trade father will be furious it must be hard for you to be the disappointing child right this is just incredible but it's not just a pure show off like it's not just a flex for the sake of flexing he's actually showing real wisdom and awareness that few of these other characters possess because when Cersei asks him what he knows of war he says nothing but I know people and I know that our enemies hate each other almost as much as they hate us that line I know people it's the same thing that Varys and Littlefinger have going for them actually understanding human nature understanding the way your enemy thinks when you have that advantage you don't have to flex as much as these people like Stannis who don't have that understanding and who only have the the facade that they're forced to show to the world. Cersei, meanwhile, while she got the uh, short end of the deal with Tyrion, whether she realizes it or not, she laid the smackdown on Littlefinger, a self-made man, and Cersei is never one to let people forget where they came from. 
she notices his sigil on his chest. She says, a mockingbird, you created your own sigil, didn't you? Appropriate for a self-made man with so many songs to sing. Littlefinger has made himself who he is, but I think this is this is fundamental thinking in Westeros. You know, the Lannisters are one of the oldest families in the realm, and they're just going to look down their nose at a guy who came from essentially no place and turned himself into a lord by rubbing a few coins together. And he tries to tell her, or at least display to her, that that money, which can buy knowledge, is a type of power, you know, a soft power. He knows things, therefore he can act in a certain way. And that is true, but then Cersei shows him what actual power is. You know, Littlefinger says, knowledge is power. Cersei has him seize, seize him, cut his throat, stop, oh, wait, I've changed my mind. She makes this very coquettish little gesture as if to to contrast, you know, life and death with her whims, with her ability right. to, to take someone's life just by saying it, by thinking it. Step back three paces in the Lannister Guardman do. Turn around, close your eyes. And she says to him, power is power. Do see if you can take some time away from your coins and your horse <laughs> to locate the Stark girl Savage. for me. I would very much appreciate it. I mean, she literally has a knife to his throat. She can take him out at any time and she's displaying this to him. Yes, you know things. Sure, you can move pieces around a board if you can convince them to take your coin. I can have you killed today, right, right now. One of the most overwhelmingly jarring things about that scene is how Bored she seems. Yeah. It's not it's even. A, you know, it's not even worth casual. her time. Casual, exactly. Extremely it's just that casual. that casual flex. Joffrey, nothing casual about Joffrey, right? He's flexing like Jeremy Renner. He's flipping uh, houses. He's renovating throne rooms. Right. I'm returning this room to its proper appearance. That's right. Say what you will about the Targaryens, but they were, they conquerors. were conquerors. He doesn't want flowers. No. He doesn't want vines. He doesn't Blood want any of that frilly stuff. Death and smoke. He goes so far as to shit on Tywin. A king does not ask, Joffrey says. He commands. My grandfather's stupidity in the field is the reason Uncle Jamie is a prisoner in the first place. Woof. Now, this is an astonishing thing for a really person is. to say, especially a person in that family who should know what it means to speak out against Tywin. But Joffrey isn't afraid to flex because he's too stupid. He's too dim-witted to yeah. be afraid of anything. And that, of course, is one of his fatal flaws, right? Not even his mother is safe from this sheer force of will that drives him, right? He says to her, this is a thing that a son said to a mother, I'm asking if he fucked other women when he grew tired of you. How many bastards does he have running around? Now, of course, this earns Joffrey one of the signature slaps of the show. The Joffrey slap reel is, is one of the true delights that Thrones has to offer. Uh, but he's not, he's not cowed by this, right? Back in season one... When Tyrion slapped Joffrey, he sort of like skulked off and whined yeah. and kind of cried a little. This time, he says, that's treasonous. Yeah. You will never do it again. And then he promptly has a bunch of Robert's bastards killed, babies and all. So that's a flex. But question, is it a flex if no one knows you did it? Like, is it a flex if you're not overtly taking credit for it? Interesting question. Sansa um, is faced with flexing and never being able to take credit for it. She has no power, essentially, in the situation she's in. She can try and manipulate events uh, just through persuasion. Mm -hmm. You know, she's in that she's in that situation in during Joffrey's name day where Sir Dantas is having the wine poured down his throat and Joffrey is going to have him killed. 
And she finds that goodness in her heart to, even though it would probably cause her great pain if it should become obvious to Joffrey what she's doing, she tries to save him. You know, she tries to manipulate um, Joffrey by telling him, you know, it's bad luck to have someone killed on your name day or any day. In order to save this guy that she doesn't even know just because, you know, he's weaker. And she's also, meanwhile, flexing for the people around her. The Hound picks this up, you know, right away. When Tyrion arrives, he's you know, says, Sansa, you know, my my condolences, my dear. And she uh, flexes by going to this kind of robotic mode where she says, my father was a traitor, my mother and brother are traitors. I'm loyal to the beloved Joffrey. Right. Exactly. And... It's an interesting dynamic because it's not one we see commonly where right. by acting like you're powerless, you actually are showing you have power. Right. She's adapting. I'm signaling to you that I understand the rules of this game, even though I don't agree with the words I'm saying. Totally. Adapting to your circumstances yeah. is one of the most important kinds of flexing in this story. And Rob, Sansa's brother, he is really enjoying his newfound ability to flex. He's he winning is, right now. He's winning, as he'll happily remind you. <laughs> he's lording it over Jamie's, right, who's a prisoner. He's lording his victories, his yeah. control, his knowledge, literally just the mere like fact of his physical freedom, right? Yeah. Like standing over someone who is chained yep. to the ground and sitting in his own shit is a sincere power play and then when you bring in your massive direwolf on top of it not bad at all so when jamie says what's wrong you don't like being called boy insulted insulted (laughs) rob has the perfect comeback right he says you insult yourself kingslayer you were defeated by a boy captured by a boy perhaps you'll be killed for a boy and then again he brings gray wind into the pen to continue with this flexing and this other exchange, when, when Jamie says, you think my father's going to negotiate with you, you don't know him very well, and Rob replies by saying, no, but he's starting to know me. Yeah. And then the infamous, readily quotable, three yeah. victories don't make you a conqueror, no, but it's better than three defeats. Well, those are just overt flexes. That's right. just literally saying... I'm winning. Scoreboard. Exactly. (laughs) Scoreboard, baby. And his peace terms to Cersei are a subtler but ultimately similar flex because he knows that she won't even consider them and yet he's doing it anyway. That's for the locker room. That's for his guys. Exactly. To show the kind of leader he is, to show the demands that he's willing to make. When he says... If he disregards this command, he shall suffer the same fate as my father. Only I don't need a servant to do my killing for me. That's also for his men, right? It's for his own ego, right. but it's also for his men because it's it's basically saying it's our way is the old way, right? right? The North. I understand who we are. The values, the things that we prize and cherish up here are just superior yep. to this like prissy way soft. of life right. soft exactly like well we'll later hear theon say hard places breed hard men and this is akin to rob saying soft places breed soft men and i'm gonna take those soft men down hey guys just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor binge mode is brought to you by direct tv now live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device plus you can subscribe to hbo and start watching game of thrones today and now back to binge mode Danny is in in an interesting place because she uh, basically 
it, you know, she's got that Targaryen blood where she wants to flex, but she really doesn't know how, and she needs to learn how. Jorah, she says to Jorah, I've promised to protect them. She's talking about her Dothraki riders who are now dying out in the desert. I promised them their enemies would die screaming. How do I make starvation scream? A.K.A., how do I act like the boss when uh, I've just, you know, I'm getting owned out here in the desert? Right. You know, they're the dragons, too weak to fight, as are your people. You must be their strength. They are looking to you, he's trying to say. They're looking to you to understand how to react to this situation. You need to be strong right now. And Danny says, you know, after he says, you must be their strength, she says, as you are mine. He's my strength, too. Uh, No one's looking to Craster, but he is our our last flexor (laughs) of this episode. When Mormont says the cold winds are rising and Craster responds by saying, let them come, my roots are sunk deep, he is either truly unafraid or he wants everyone to think he's truly unafraid and either strategy is is incredibly effective and then he's he's showing that he's not the only one who's saying things like this he's gotten all of his minions all of his daughter wives to to espouse the same kind of bullshit or maybe it isn't right when he has gilly say better to live free than die a slave craster is basically westeros's give no fucks meme and he's not just flexing when it comes to his offerings or his standing with the White Walkers, which we'll come to learn more about in the next few episodes, he is flexing about just his entire way of life, right? His daughter wives, making the Men of the Night's Watch basically his playthings for their entire stay. Like, if any man lays a hand on my wives, he loses a hand. He's loving it. He's relishing in it. He's relishing in being able to lord power and control over the men who their entire purpose in life is to control and thwart people like him. All right, Jason. Yes. Craster, like Maester Crescent, probably smells of fear and piss in old bones. Yes. Reasonable assumption, I think. We didn't get a whiff of Crescent, but we did get to hear that great Melisandre dig, and we did get to see how truly disturbed he was by what he was witnessing, what he was seeing unfolding on Dragonstone, Stannis' seat. So... Now that Stannis and his Red Woman and his Onion Knight are finally on our screens, finally in pursuit of the Iron Throne, let's assemble the Conclave, take us to the Citadel, teach us everything we need to know about the history of Dragonstone and the rules of secession that are leading to this Stannis pursuit in the first place. Dragonstone, welcome to windswept Dragonstone in the mouth of Blackwater Bay, located just a stone's throw from King's Landing. This volcanic island containing the ominous castle of the same name was for centuries the seat of the Targaryen heir to the throne. Now, Robert gave Stannis Dragonstone as a reward for his loyalty and his abilities in battle, both in his own rebellion and in the Greyjoy Rebellion that followed. On the surface, this is an honor, but it would prove to be a poison chalice for Stannis. The island of Dragonstone enters the historical record about 200 years before the Doom, roughly 600 years before the events of the show. Valyria, then at the height of its power, had established a colony on the island, easily wiping away the petty lords of the Narrow Sea that tried to stop them. It was at that time that Valerian steel first started to kind of trickle into Westeros through Dragonstone, likely through trade with the Valerians um, by various lords and, and kings in the area, although it didn't come in to the... Not enough came in to kind of uh, satiate 
Westeros's intense thirst for this new material. So we don't know if the kingdoms of Westeros considered the outpost a threat. They probably did, whatever the case. Events in Essos held Valeria's attention uh, for several centuries thereafter. They built the castle of Dragonstone on the island using fire and magic. And to look at the castle, you would you would immediately recognize it as, as Valerian architecture. It has all the hallmarks, the stone flows as if as if it had melted there are no joints there are no seams there are no bricks um it has these kind of huge dragon towers that rise up you would not be able to recreate this castle using traditional means of architecture so 12 years before the doom anar then the head of house targaryen acting on his daughter danny the dreamer uh, Danny Dreamer's dream, premonition of the destruction of Valeria, fled to the island of Dragonstone with all his wealth, his five dragons, becoming the first lord of Dragonstone. Fast forward 114 years later. Aegon, soon to be the conqueror, after sitting at his uh, great painted table, which is a map of Westeros, detailed map that we will later see Stannis <laughs> bone down with Melisandre on, um, invades Westeros, uniting the, the, the Seven Kingdoms under his rule. Well, Six minus Dorne. Uh, he does create the crown lands, so creates an entire new region. So technically, yes, seven, seven kingdoms. And the lordship of Dragonstone then becomes an important symbolic position. It became customary for the Targaryen king to bestow the castle and its holdings to his heir, thus signifying to the realm, this guy is next. So after Robert's rebellion, when Robert named Stannis lord of Dragonstone, he was in effect signaling to the realm that should he pass Without issue of his own body, Stannis would be his heir. Uh, kind of a raw deal, however, for several reasons. Number one, bottom line, Dragonstone kind of sucks as a place to own. <laughs> you know, you can't really grow anything there. The the surrounding islands and the lords that are uh, sworn to Dragonstone are not numerous. And then you compare that to Storm's End, which is the seat of the Baratheon family and the, and the lead castle of the Stormlands, which was given to Renly by Robert, Renly at that time just a child. And you kind of, you, you see what the problem is. You know, Storm's End is incredibly imposing. It has many, many lands and many, many lords sworn to it. Renly could, if he wanted to, call his banners and raise a mighty, mighty, mighty army. Stannis... You know, he can raise a couple of fisher guys and like a dude, you know, like who has like a weird tower. And he just, you know, like you, you see this by the fact that he has no fleet in the show. So once Robert has Joffrey, so everyone thinks the power behind the symbolism is gone. He's not going to be next in line. Now he is just the lord of this really kind of shitty castle with this shitty income. He's totally isolated from the politics of the realm. Meanwhile, Renly is growing rich and he's growing powerful, influential. He's able to kind of mix and mingle with the lords of the land. And this shows you why on top of Stannis' own person, this unyielding personality that he has, he's so eager to leap to the opportunity that Ned's letter provides him. Yeah. And it's, it's again, it's interesting. It's an interesting example of perception, right? right? Because Everything you're saying about the intent behind the gestures and right. the awardings of the respective castles, it almost doesn't matter doesn't. what the intent was, because what do people perceive? They perceive going to Dragonstone. Stannis will say, the way to give Renly Storm's end. If, right, you know, right. Like, it's perceived to others, certainly, but even in a way to Stannis, though he's not emotionally mature enough to acknowledge it really at this time, 
as an exile of sorts, as a shooing away. Right. Like, you're not fun. Right. We don't want you at the party, so right. paddle out to right. your own little, like, salty seat. Right. Um, at least he has Melisandre, right? And at least now we have that information because, as Stannis would say, let no man claim ignorance is an excuse, <laughs> and now none of you can. And now that we have all that information, if Melisandre will allow it, it is time for us to head to the Sept to bathe in the light of the Seven ah. by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations and hindsight nuggets from this episode, lightning round style. You go first. The White Raven has arrived from the Citadel, meaning summer is over. The longest summer in living memory. It's lasted about nine years. Uh, Seasons, as we know, for reasons that are unexplained, last an undetermined length. Number two, Sansa. When she saves Dantos and says he'll make a much better fool than a knight, he doesn't deserve the mercy of a quick death, this is a really key moment for what is to come, right? We know now, after watching the rest of the show, after seeing how future seasons play out, that Dantos is going to be a key agent yep. in Sansa's fate. And this moment, this exchange between them, this gesture on her behalf, is what allows everything that's going to come to unfold. Bran, bringing up the comet, they say it's an omen. They say it means Rob won a great victory in the South. Osha, Osha says she heard some say it marks a Lannister victory, some Ned's death. She says, a red comet means one thing, boy, dragons. Uh, in addition, Osha, how many other people are out there are, are woke enough to understand <laughs> to make the dragon connection? Number four, Mormont to John. You want to lead one day, then learn how to follow. True Yoda shit right here. Good advice. Yeah. Good teachable moment for John, who, let's be honest, needs a few of these, yeah. needs to get a little reminder every that now and then about how to behave, how to interact. It's not always just okay to sulk in the corner and do whatever you want. Craster talking to Lord Commander Mormont about Mance Raider. Lord Commander asks where the villagers have gone north to join up with Mance Raider, your old friend. Mormont says, he's no friend of mine, broke his vows, betrayed his brothers, foreshadowing the king beyond the wall. Number six, Theon. Oh, Theon. So many gifts he gives us. I'm... Not a Stark, he says to Rob. I know that. But your father raised me to be an honorable man. We can avenge him together. Guys, real talk time? Yeah. Fuck Theon. (laughs) Fuck this dude. That is so upsetting to hear him say after we know what will happen and what he will do and how he will turn his cloak time and time again. Also, notable that Kat tries to warn Rob. It's one of the few times that she's right. She says, he, he being Balon, Theon's dad, he's not trustworthy. Your father had to go to war to end his rebellion. This is like a real merit for Kat that she has this awareness and this ability to not basically just hand wave important bits of history. Number seven, Shay. Arriving in the city, man, does she love cities. She loves the smell of shit, loves the smell of cum. And she says, cities make me want to fuck. To which Tyrion replies, the country too. <laughs> well, in that, same, in that same exchange, Tyrion tells Shay that the city is full of liars, yeah. good liars, bad liars, one or two great liars. And 
every episode, we are honoring the person who played the game, who advanced his or her cause or his or her ally's cause in the most tangible way. And this week, the winner of our champion's purse is one of those great truth benders that the story will ever see. It is... The Red Woman herself, Melisandre. Nellie Mel. She got a great lord. Yep. And the bulk of a great house to forsake the seven. This is huge. And adopt the foreign religion of R'hllor, which we will talk about much more in coming episodes. That's big. That would be big. This would be something that would be talked about across the realm. Um, She's positioned herself immediately as essentially the hands of the king, uh, his most trusted advisor. Uh, She throws a big party on the beach. Uh, she took down a person who tried to kill her. She did it in a very public way that displayed that she is not someone to be fucked with. And she drank poison to no ill effect. Yeah. And she looked good. She looked good doing it. Well, when boys and girls live in the same podcast studio, awkward situations can arise. Ooh. So that is a wrap on this episode. We hope that you guys had as much fun as we did. We are very glad to be back diving into season two. We hope that you will join us next time when we will be discussing <laughs> season two episode two the nightlands and until then remember you love this podcast it's your one redeeming quality that in your cheekbones i love the smell of cum cities make me want to fuck So did the country. (laughs)